Hello and welcome to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. Each week, my guest and I share our vulnerable behind-the-scenes stories of giving ourselves permission to take off our masks, let go of our expectations, and embrace our own path of freedom and authentic connection. I'm your host, Bianca Hughes, a lover of authenticity and a licensed professional counselor in Georgia. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Authentic Wednesday podcast. I really am so excited about this conversation in particular because this conversation has challenged me in so many ways and really encouraged me to look at money and deal with money shame. So I'm really excited about the conversation we have today for you guys to listen to. My guest today is Dr. Ayana Abrams. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in Georgia and CEO founder of the Ascension Behavioral Health LLC, which is a solo private practice. She obtained her master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology with an emphasis on multicultural needs and experiences. Dr. Abrams' specialities include working with college-age populations and graduate professional students, young adults, entrepreneurs, and a heavy emphasis on relationship and marital therapy. She has extensive experience working with people of color, specifically black women, black men, and black couples. Areas of clinical interest include anxiety, generalized relationship and academic, mild to severe depression, toxic relationships, trauma, academic stress management, and issues with adjustment. More recently, Dr. Abrahams has broadened her practice to maternal mental health needs. Dr. Abrahams enjoys providing consultation and guest speaking opportunities to organizations, specifically nonprofits, schools, churches, hospitals, and other media, and has been featured on Afropunk, Therapy for Black Girls, and Silence the Shame. She is the co-founder of Not So Strong an initiative to improve the mental health and relationship functioning of black women through the use of vulnerable storytelling. Her mantra, kindness prevails. Her favorite destination, anywhere that is above 82 degrees with a light breeze, has city lights to the right and water views to the left would please her very well. Fun fact about her and her siblings, all of them were born in different continents, South America, Europe, and North America. And her passion is connection, connecting people deeply to themselves and one another. And connection is a big part of the Authentic Wednesday podcast. So let's go ahead and get into the conversation. Welcome, Dr. Abrams, to the Authentic Wednesday podcast. How are you? Good. I'm really excited that you're here. Dr. Abrams is like another one of my friends, guys. I'm telling you, I just know such amazing people with amazing stories. Like we're always either on the texts or on the DMs, whichever one. But we're all there, all there together. And she's just doing some amazing work in the Atlanta area. And just um, regarding mental health, especially for Black people. Mm -hmm. And she's a great voice in the community. But um, she's here to kind of tell you her story today. I know normally... If you hear from her, she's sharing about her work, but she's going to be sharing about her. So first, yes, I'm so grateful because I know she was nervous. But um, first thing, what does authenticity mean for you? How do you define it? Authenticity to me means that there is a 
congruence or there's a match uh, between how you view, how you value, um, what things look like and feel like for you internally versus how you're able to promote yourself to the world. Um, so things just feel as though they're kind of moving in a state of flow um, versus things feeling really clunky or that there are parts of you that feel more kind of hidden or don't feel kind of allowed in a public space. But um, that again, the inside matches the outside. That's the kind of clearest way. Um, but I think about authenticity um, and the more you're able to do that is the more confident you get, which means the more authentic you can get kind of with that voice. But just that that the, the ways in which you feel um, and kind of know how you are set and kind of how you are in the world show up through your actions. Cool. Is it easy for you? Hard? Middle ground? Um, it's become easier and easier as I've gotten older. Um, it wasn't always easy for me because the ways in which I felt or knew myself internally didn't match the limits of my surroundings. Um, So for me, growing up in a Caribbean household, Mm. (laughs) while living in New Jersey, right? Those things, the inside of my house did not match my outside, right? So me and my parents used to have conversations about that, that the way that I was in here is not the way that I was in school with my friends, literally when I stepped out of the door. Um, So I wasn't really able to practice that kind of free flow of authenticity um, when I was younger, but then also being in a having a Caribbean household, Caribbean parents and living in a white neighborhood. So just all these mismatches, mismatches, mismatches. So I think I started becoming or kind of practicing more authenticity once I got to college, when I could kind of curate a lot more of my surroundings um, socially, um, in terms of the, the work or kind of the community work I was doing, in terms of my interests, I had some more control then. And then as I moved through graduate school, just kind of getting more and more clear about what was important to me um, made it a little bit easier to promote that. But again, it, it based on the limits of whatever surrounding I was in, which is why I'm very careful about my surroundings now, that changes how how easy or difficult it, it feels for me to be authentic. Ah, okay. So the more you are comfortable in the surroundings, the more authentic that you are? Yeah, comfortable and, and safety, right? In terms of an emotional safety, in terms of a, a, a racial or ethnic safety. Um, I think authenticity is... I imagine it would be easier for a lot of us um, in those spaces that we feel safe. Um, but if you're not in those spaces, <clears throat> it can be harder to feel like you're going against the grain or that you won't be supported or validated. So, um, And I still have experiences like that now, but because I'm, I'm doing a lot more kind of disciplined or diligent practice and being authentic, even in those spaces that have limits, I can still practice it and then sh- not choose those spaces anymore versus before I didn't feel like I could choose my spaces. So I had to be incongruent, but I'm able to to curate these stages of my adult life to where things do feel more congruent. So my settings actually match more my inside. Cool. So I like that word, those words you used, racial and ethnic safety. Mm, Yeah. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a bit more about that? So a sense of, of being or kind of feeling seen and kind of understood. And that doesn't mean that you understand all of my experiences, but is there an embracing or an honoring of those parts of my identity that allows me to feel safe? Do you actually see me Um, versus, you know, we're still in space where people say, I don't see color. Well, that doesn't actually feel safe for me because that means that you're dismissing a lot of my experiences or kind of nuances of how I'm showing up in this space. Um, So people think that that's safety. I was like, yeah, I just don't see these things. I'm not, you know, judging you. But it's like, yeah, but you're dismissing me. So that doesn't feel safe for me. So that's what I mean by kind of a, a racial or, or an ethnic 
<clears throat> safety where I'd feel again, kind of respected, honored, seen, um, kind of allowed, right. To kind of be those, to have those identities be in the room. Yeah, that's cool. What is it like when you're in those spaces? I mean, even though you're working through it now, but was it like to be in those safe spaces and you're not authentic? How do you experience that? To be in, to feel safe and not be authentic or to, um, in the spaces where they don't necessarily, it's not your typical environment or your most comfortable environment. I'm sure it probably comes with more anxiety by way of a vigilance or kind of just a hypervigilance of the scan of the room. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm quieter in those spaces. I probably become much more observant in those spaces versus other spaces where I am talking more. I'm initiating conversation. I, there's spontaneity in my conversation or topics that I'll bring up versus like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just browsing. I'm just browsing because I don't feel safe enough to kind of put a lot into the room. So probably how I would show up in those spaces. But it doesn't, it doesn't throw me off internally in ways in which I think it would when I was younger. I think now I'm able to just, just kind of see it as like, oh, that's not my space. Okay. That has nothing to do with me versus before. I think I, I was probably telling myself that I was doing something wrong. Um, so I do a lot less of that. I'm now able to internalize and be like, nope. That just wasn't your space. Those weren't your people or that just ain't your night, whatever it might be. So I leave it with with a lot less kind of doubt or guilt or anything like that. That's so interesting because I feel like that's the same as I think I was sharing. I went to two events earlier this year and they were both black events. Mm -hmm. But there was one that I definitely felt more comfortable in. And I was like, oh, this is what it means to find your tribe. Mm. Not that there was anything wrong with either the people in the events. It was just the people that you connected with, the space where you felt like seen and you could yep. um, be more relatable. Because there's, of course, you know, spaces as, as black, black people and we go into white spaces, you know, you're heightened. But it also mm. can happen in, um, in black spaces too. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Um, I okay. definitely... Hmm? I said, all skin folk ain't kin folk. <laughs> we're still different. We're still, you know, yeah. we're still amongst black, but yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, so it's so important to find your tribe is what I have found. And I definitely feel like just, I think business-wise, I kind of find my tribe this year. Mm. Yeah, yeah people to to relate to in business and and things like that so it definitely feels more in the flow of yep. things as um of course you know from one caribbean to another mm-hmm. it's so interesting because we're both first generations but we're first generations in different countries you in america and me in london but it's always interesting that our experiences were still the same it was the overlap <laughs> it was the overlap yeah what was it like where was you most authentic when you were a child was it in the household or outside of the home outside definitely not in the household um I'm very different from I I have a lot of qualities of both of my parents but I'm still remarkably different from them for a number of different reasons so outside of the home with my friends in school I probably felt the most comfortable in academic settings when I was younger and paradoxically, while I felt more comfortable in school, in academic settings, kind of with peers, there was also a difference because I was considered the smart peer. So there's still this like, oh, well, you're the smart black girl. You're not with us over here. So even though um, I felt more 
connected, congruent. I could be fun. There were there were dynamics of my intelligence or discipline around intelligence or education that still kind of pulled me apart from the people who I felt safest with, which were black black peers and kind of black students. So then it kind of pulled me into connecting more with white students academically, but I didn't feel comfortable with them or kind of safe racially or ethnically. So it was just always this. That's why I said like so while there were kind of these spaces or kind of periods of time where I could feel congruent, it wasn't full. Mm. It wasn't full until I could curate both my academic and my social space. And that wasn't until um, college. That you was able to find that and be like, oh, there's someone like me. Right. And intentionally look for that and not have to kind of do a lot of work to find people who had those same values and who were also either Caribbean or African emigrated to America. So things like that were really helpful for me. But again, I didn't experience that until freshman year of college. Mm. So you in particular sought out um, Mm -hmm. Caribbean background. That's so funny because I remember coming here and I was like, I need a Jamaican friend. (laughs) (laughs) And I have one. (laughs) Essie ended up finding one. Essie ended up being my neighbor. Mm. But I was like, I need a Jamaican friend. I just needed that. And I used to, um, I don't know about you, but even sometimes now I still need that experience. But I would feel guilty. Because it's like, are you black or are you just mm-hmm. the, 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 the black race? But now I'm like, no, it's just a cultural thing. It's like you talked about a value thing and yeah. something that you kind of need to help maintain that level of authenticity. Yeah. So I sought that out in terms of Caribbean students. Um, I just sought that out in terms of students of color who were first generation um, in that way. So, but I was also fine with um, kind of, I mean, my best friend is her parents are from the U.S., born and raised in the U.S. So it didn't make us any, it didn't create kind of conflict in any way um, in terms of me connecting with people who identify as Black Americans, but I needed a, a mix. And my, the towns that I grew up in didn't have that mix. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they were predominantly white. Right. Mm-hmm. How did, how did college help you to bring out that authentic side of you? In one way, just by mere presence of people who are a little bit more similar to me. Um, So people who could understand or speak to in different ways, the kind of bicultural, right? Um, This is how it is inside the house. But as soon as I step out on my block, it's different. So I think just by mere kind of exposure, um, I didn't feel so alone in it. And then two, just having having groups and kind of conversations that were dedicated to those kinds of experiences was helpful. Like I said, this is not even just in terms of... um, it being kind of Caribbean or Black Caribbean. These were, you know, peers of mine who um, identified as Dominican or Dominican American. It was just kind of across the board that it was really helpful just to kind of see and to see them connect with each other and have them connect to me that that was, it was the, the storytelling piece of it. It always been helpful. It kind of, it, it can break down a number of barriers or assumptions and be like, oh, okay, well, you might understand me in this way, or you would understand what my parents say. They have an accent. Right. So I hear less about like, I don't know what they're saying. I can't understand it. And I'm not going to try either versus like, oh, where's your father from? Like, I hear an accent. I'm trying to place it. Is that mm, I know it's somewhere in the Caribbean. It's like, oh, OK, you know, um, versus a lot of the ridiculous comments I got through our childhood about my parents speaking a different language. I'm like, it's English. It's English. <laughs> it's <always laughs> so just those kinds of quote unquote kind of smaller kind of examples or kind of nuances allowed me to feel safer. Like, okay, I don't have to explain these things about myself. Mm, That's so much easier when you don't have to explain and you could go right into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely feel you on that. So I often talk about masks and the different masks we wear. And I know um, you have a few different masks, but there's one in particular that I think is a hot topic. <laughs> okay. I, have a, I probably do have a few. Uh, no, let's, let's list them. <laughs> do you want to list them or you just want to talk about this one? We ain't got time to list all of them. All of them. Well, one should I say you've worn and you're kind of taken off in that area. Man, financial anxiety. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a yeah. And, and what's interesting is even as you as we kind of talk about masks, I think it's mask feels like something that's a very kind of intentional way that you keep hidden. Mm. Um, and it's not that I, I think particularly for Black women, it's not that I've intentionally kept conversations about finances hidden. I think we also just don't have a, a repertoire of having these conversations. So I actually don't have to hide it too much. Um, so it's not something that when somebody asks me about something, I'm just like, no, I can never let this out. I can never, you know, talk about these numbers. But I think particular to our, when I say our, Black and or Black women's community, it's actually, it's much easier. It's much easier to quote unquote avoid the anxiety or oh, maybe comes the quote unquote kind of public anxiety around it because we're not as well versed in having these conversations anyway. Yeah. There aren't too many friends that I talk about finances with and it's not because they bring it up and I'm and I shoo it away. It's because it's, it's, we don't bring it up. What are some of your, well, how would you des- define financial anxiety for you? So broad um, in terms of just criteria for anxiety, right? There's this, there is this thing in your life. There's this topic, there's a scenario, there's a stimulus that creates a lot of either worry, hypervigilance, over worry, um, excessive worry um, and you don't feel as though or you don't think that you have the resources to be able to cope with it so then that's what shows so anxiety um, and the way that it presents specific to me is more avoidance I think for other people financial anxiety shows up as control and kind of mm. that hypervigilance I'll make sure that this or this or this I am super 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 budgeted I am frugal, quote unquote, I am cheap, I am minimalist, all the different labels that people have to kind of manage anxiety. I don't spend on stuff. I don't treat myself. I don't indulge. Everything, every dollar has a has an assignment um, in a way that actually creates some anxiety. But for me, it doesn't look like that. For me, it looks like, or it has historically looked like avoiding the numbers, just not engaging in the numbers until I have to, because now there's a problem. Literally avoiding what Avoiding doing math around things, avoiding, you know, looking at what the income is, um, avoiding bills at one point, avoiding conversations around bills. That was more so with my therapist, not my friends. But you're just not looking at numbers, not not engaging in the bank account to a point where I could take control over it. I'd just be very reactive. Wow. Moving a lot of money from savings to check in when it needed, like just doing a lot of that. <laughs> 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 that's how my anxiety showed up in a way in which I actually just was not in, um, was not in control. Wow. That was a lot. Cause I never considered, um, frugal and budgeting as a form of financial anxiety. But now that you yeah. mention it, yeah. it, it, it can, can be that label. Yeah. That's yeah. a way in which you can, um, it can go under the radar. Yeah. So tell me, do you know why you didn't look at it? Well, a number of reasons. I, th- I, I was not well-versed in money coming into making money. So I didn't have a conversation with my parents about money. Um, I wasn't taught anything about money. I got to college freshman year and we opened up a bank account. So all I knew is that when I started my, my um, work-study position, that money goes into this bank account and that my mom had access to it and she put money 
in there. But did I, I didn't have any financial literacy, not at all. I worked my first job, I think when I was a senior in high school and had money for like spending stuff, but I didn't really have a lot of needs then. So in terms of money management, I didn't learn any of that before I, I had to kind of like practice managing money. You know about any of that. And so the money that I made in college, quote unquote, wasn't a lot. Um, it would help me do some things, but my mom would always kind of replenish stuff like that. I'd get money sometimes from my brother, I think, because he's a few years older. And then by the time I got to graduate school, now is the first time that I'm paying rent and like student loan lump sums are coming in. So I really don't know how to manage money. I've got thousands of dollars in the bank account that I need to figure out how to spread across three months. And I have no clue how to spread it across three months. So then that got me in trouble. And then I would kind of avoid things and whichever it is. So yeah, just not having financial literacy. And I don't, when I think about it, I'm not sure that even if I, I would have asked my parents that they could teach me about money management. I think they just knew, they just knew what they were doing with their money, which is very different than having like financial literacy and being able to teach somebody about money. I think they just knew that money came in, you spread it out in these ways, and then you get another paycheck. So I don't think they actually had financial literacy enough to teach me rules around it. They could probably just, just tell me what they were doing. Um, so I really, I didn't really have models for that. So they didn't really sit down and go over money with you and managing money did you ever ask have you ever asked them why not no I think because I I I think I understand why not and the only time we would talk about money is if I needed some and they'd be like why you need money again so but it wasn't a hey what's happening with your money let's look at a budget let's look at your expenses it wasn't anything like that it's like you need money again what are you doing with it where'd you so and then they decided you're not what were you doing with it so money in college, food, <laughs> food, you got to put money on your meal card and you get three meals a day, but if you miss the meal time, then you don't have food, just food. Yeah. So college was more, cause I had a work study position. So actually, so college was actually not a time in which I think I asked for a lot of money. My mom would be generous and would put money in my account, but food, shopping, basic needs were being taken care of by my parents. They paid for undergrad for me. So I actually don't think I experienced, a. I think my financial anxiety began in college, but I don't think I experienced a ton of it in college. It wasn't really until graduate school and loans and loan repayment. That's where it really, um, that's where it hit. How did you respond when that anxiety hit? Did you just continue to avoid? Did you ask for yeah. help? Yeah, I'm, I am more avoidant than anything. So for me, there's typically a period or a long enough period of suffering before I try to get some help around it. But help still wouldn't have been or hasn't been my parents. Outside of help looking like I, I, would, I need money for something, but not help in terms of like structuring or restructuring my finances or advising me in any way. Their kind of help is just, I would like some money. And that was it. Was it overwhelming when you got to like grad school and you was realizing well, all these loans and payments were coming in. And so it's like, uh, I don't want to deal with yeah. this today. Well, because grad school, then I had different responsibilities. Now that I have my own apartment. So now I've got to manage money in terms of rent. I've got to manage money in terms of paying a utility bill. And I've got to manage money in terms of groceries or cooking or I had a, I had a train and a bus pass. I didn't have to pay for like transportation in that way, but cabs, anything like that. So anything social. Right. So, so socializing um, and basic kind of shelter and utility stuff, um, managing that. And my, I was shopping probably as a means to deal with 
academic stress. Um, but just managing those now life things that all showed up at the same time. I didn't know how to do that. So I was just doing it reactively. Like, oh, this is needed to pay this. I'll just pay that. But I didn't think about if something else needs to be paid at that time. Oh, I want to get into wine. I'm 22. This stuff like that was just like, I just, uh, we'll just see what happens. And yeah, paying, figuring out rent. And then my second year in graduate school, my parents, <coughs> my parents bought me a condo in Chicago. Um, so then it was managing I think I gotten some money in the uh, it, from the sellers to be able to kind of do repairs and paint and kind of all that stuff. Um, but anything else that I wanted now for this new place that I have was now where's this money going to come from? And again, I had a lot of money sitting in my bank account because of student loan, top of the semester, you know, top. Of the, uh, but I just didn't I didn't manage that in terms of stretching it across three or four months at a time. Very well. Um, so then it would look like, hey mom, can I have some money? Um, not usually my dad, it usually be my mom. Um, and then my second year of, when did I meet him? Second year of graduate school, I began dating somebody who was not financially secure. So then my money went, that was actually the, the, is that, is the word pinnacle? That was probably the pinnacle of, is pinnacle the right word? Pinnacle peak? Uh, Climax? Uh, yeah, I was going to say like the worst part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is when I went into a kind of financial caretaker role for him. So then it was much more kind of reactivity with money because I have quote unquote, now that I look back and it wasn't really a lot of money, but I have quote unquote a lot of money. So now I am taking care of two people in a way, which I didn't have enough money for but I would forego things to make sure that this was taken care of over here. So that's when, that's probably when it got a lot worse. And I started making a lot of poor decisions with money for the next three and a half, four years. Wow. With that. So yeah, that was a lot. And, yeah. <laughs> I've lived a life y'all. I have lived a life. Wow. I guess I'm stuck on the three and a half years. You were stuck in it, in that. Yeah. Cycle. Not, not even that I felt stuck, but I was in a I was in a cycle of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How bad did it get in terms of finances? Credit card debt. Yep, I had credit card. Yeah, I opened up a credit card when I got to Chicago as well. So yeah, credit card debt on top of maxing out my loans every year, which means just kind of getting the max amount that uh, my institution would give me. That for the first three three years, I think, of grad school, it, it did cover tuition and stuff, um, tuition and kind of me living in Chicago. But the fourth year, the, we had the loan issues. Like loans, were, just, loans were, were becoming not enough to even cover our basic needs as students. So a lot of us had jobs. And I had three jobs, I think, by that point. So between loans, maxing out credit cards, having three jobs that I can kind of put together, it still wasn't enough uh, for me to take care of me and some aspects of a whole other person who also had children child it was a whole thing um, <laughs> and yeah that lasted for that that lasted for years because then I felt responsible for it so that was probably more of the stuckness the stuckness didn't show up at the beginning stuckness probably showed up towards the latter part of the relationship but now I'm responsible for us doing this or this or this um so if, and if I don't do it it won't happen so that was the stuckness that I would yeah wow that's pretty deep yeah all while in a doctoral program yeah. <laughs> when you say it, does it seem wild when you say it back to yourself? It seems, and every time I, I talk about it, 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 it seems wild, but I think as I've gotten older, I recognize how unfortunately 
I don't want to say common, but common enough that it is that the, this story, even if it's maybe not a doctoral level, you know, pre-psychologist and a person who is unemployed or underemployed or who has children or who is impoverished. Um, so while that dynamic kind of might seem rare, it's not that rare. A lot of the narratives of, of clients who I see, a lot of the narratives of people who I connect with in the community are women in a certain financial threshold or career threshold or range, dating, feeling responsible for, feeling stuck with, engaging with men who are not in that same range. Um, so I think it felt more, I felt much more isolated in it then, but now I know that it's, it's yeah, it's just, it's more common than is ideal. But at that point, I was the only one in my friend group who was dealing, or that I at least told myself, I don't know anything different now, but I was the only one in my friend group who was dealing with stuff like that. So there wasn't really a space that felt safe to talk about. Talk about that, the relationship in and of itself and or the financial part of it. That was the last thing that, that was a, a problem in some ways. So are you able to say how much you got into debt by the end of doing your PhD? Side D, girl, side D. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me think. One credit card was 8000 maxed. Another credit card was probably 6000 maxed. Yeah, so one, yeah, one credit card was 8000 maxed, one credit card was, uh, But in terms of the loan, the financial loan debt, by the time I came out of my degree, what's 30, 35 times five? Somewhere upwards of $200,000 in student loan debt uh, because I max it out every year. So adding that, so the credit card debt is actually pretty minimal to the student loan debt, but the credit card debt gave me much more anxiety than the student loan debt because I, in my mind, it was the good debt, bad debt. Mm. It was like, hey, these are the things that you knew would come with becoming a doctor with this particular degree versus a PhD. But the credit card debt was all you, boo-boo. So like, that's the, <laughs> that's the problem versus like the student loan debt. People can forgive you for that. But the credit card debt um, is where you'll get a lot more... Um, judgment, shame, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's what stuck out in my mind more. And the student loan debt, I had time to pay off. I had to graduate and then, you know, your grace period. And then there was deferment and forbearment and all those, all those mistakes that I made because of how I did those things versus credit card debt. That's monthly. That's, that's on, that's right there. Um, And at one point I just, I stopped, I stopped paying it. It must've been my fourth year. I think my fourth year, I just stopped paying my credit cards. Like, nope, can't do it. I don't, I literally like don't have it to pay and deal with this. So I let that go until it came back to bite me later. So. So I'm here, like first I'm thinking, I totally agree on the um, credit card debt. Cause that's the mm-hmm. one thing that I definitely have a hard time with. Definitely realized cause yeah, my student loan debt is way more mm-hmm. than my credit card debt, like way more. But it's just like in the back of my mind, it's not like a, a super big deal. Girl, you, you let the credit cards go. <laughs> I'm feeling anxious. Okay, so without even getting into, like I said, the, the, there are ways in which the, 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 financial, the financial debt and the anxiety that was building were actually the, the probably the easier parts to manage of what was happening in that relationship. Um, so without going into all of that stuff it felt a lot easier to let that go because I had other things to focus on in what was happening in the relationship. And that plus it's internship time. Now it's time to move. And now I'm like interviewing for places. So like that adds 
debt. My school didn't, your school, well, my program at least didn't help me with internship interview costs or hotel or any of that stuff. So that's all coming out of pocket. That's all credit card debt. And then my, I would shop to kind of relieve something. So that became, that would kind of add to the credit card debt. Yeah, and eventually it was at some points, I think maybe my fourth year of graduate school, um, at some points, even when I was in Atlanta on internship or postdoc, it was like, hey, pay this bill or like eat. And it was like, okay, well, we're going to figure out how to, so the bills have to go. Like when you have to make those kinds of decisions, you make those kinds of decisions. And that, but that was all a, a result of not confronting the things head on or kind of building more literacy around, even if I've gotten into this debt, what can I now do about it? It was just like, I can't open this bill because it has a number that was bigger than the last bill because I ain't paid it. So I'm going to just leave all that mail right on over there. And then I look at it, do you come really anxious about it and put it back down? Because I can look at all the numbers, but if I don't have money for it, then. Um, so that's what my anxiety kind of avoidance looked like. I also couldn't, you know, people are really anxious. Um, it's hard to problem solve. So all of those like problem solving skills that I knew maybe therapeutically couldn't really apply because I was too anxious about it. So they, I just didn't deal with them at all. When did things change around? Well, here we in 2019. I started seeing my therapist in 2011 and we probably tackled my financial stuff. So th- that I also ended that relationship in 2011, but I didn't tackle the financial consequences of that I probably wouldn't wouldn't even allow her to kind of really dig into it with me probably until 2013 2013 yeah so you were still having the financial trouble as well like between 2011 when you first started seeing her and 2013 yeah, but now, so now, by the time 2011, so I was uh, now an internship postdoc, getting this kind of regular paycheck and supporting myself down here. Um, I'd gotten into some financial issues after we broke up and ended up living with family member for a few months until I can kind of reset some things and then got back into a place that was my own. And it wasn't until kind of settling into that newer place that was just mine, kind of emotionally, physically, financially, then I think there was more room in therapy to then open up what I felt like, like was all this damage that I had done financially to myself um, to kind of manage things. So yeah, so it wasn't until a little while after. So while I was able to then get a hold of taking care of current stuff um, and getting on top of that, it was still the stuff behind that I hadn't figured out. Um, And now by this point, I've opened a business and now I got to figure out taxes. Ain't nobody teach me that. So now now there's a whole other thing that I need to figure out, which is like, (laughs) how am I supposed to figure out loan debt, credit card debt, taxes in general and business taxes and an office rent? Y'all tripping. So it just, there was just a lot. So it's (laughs) adulting. It's called adulting. adulting. (laughs) Practice and these are things that, People say like, well, you make this much money. I'm like, yeah, you know what it goes to? Like, I have to manage all of these parts of a business now because now I'm a business owner. So when you became a business owner, you're still dealing with your financial anxieties as well at the same time. Yep. Yep. And I was making more money, which was helpful. And again, I mean, even on internship and postdoc, you don't make a lot of money. I was making 2000 a month. Yeah. So on internship, on internship, my income was 24K. On um, postdoc, it was 32K. 
So like, even when you think about those numbers of like, okay, you're living in a major city, real close, if not below the, the quote unquote poverty line. So yeah, so now I was making more money by the time I started my practice and then I could, I could navigate things a little bit better. I just had some breathing room um, there, but now I'm becoming a business owner and that, that takes up a lot of emotional room to then learn how to run a business and learning how to be a professional independent practice, right? So what the priorities kind of shift um, around that, but more the anxiety then turned into financial anxiety regarding taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever, have you ever had a break? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm in a much better place now, but I still have, and I've, I've cleared up a lot of my debt, um, but there's still anxiety just around not, not having the literacy that I think would be the most helpful or kind of ideal and some shame around, hey, you've now been stabilizing these ways. You should know this. You should have this. You now should be investing. You should have stocks. You should have a house. It can go, it can go any direction. My mind can go any direction with that versus like, girl, get your 2018 taxes together, right? Because we're getting ready for you have to figure out these 2019 taxes. So it'll always be there, but I do feel a lot better and more literate now than five years ago. Um, that's the reason I got a, a business coach or a business consultant to make sure I didn't go to jail. Yeah. With your, um, with the finances. With my, yeah. Just with my yeah. tax. Yeah, I need an accountant. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have that before. So it's like, oh, these are things that you do as a business owner that I didn't think about. Yeah. I was just thrust into private practice. So, What helped you in therapy to kind of deal with the anxiety? She confronted me several times and she wouldn't yeah she confronted me not in like a a mean or kind of an aggressive or kind of um overbearing way but she just continued to bring it up um and the the first game changer I guess maybe the yeah the main game changer that kind of started things off is that she made me she helped me make a call in session to a debt not a debt collector, a debt, like a credit bureau, something, not a credit bureau, a credit card, something. They're called something. I forgot what they're called. But she made me make the phone call in um, session, kind of confront a lot of my shame because my shame was about, hey, I know about these people who can help you with your debt, but then I got to tell them my story. And then they're going to, you know, judge me for being so smart, you know, kind of clinically. And I'm a doctor who's made all these, you know, poor financial decisions. Then they're going to, I told myself, like, they're going to ask me about all these, the money that I spent in this relationship. They're going to ask me why I was taking care of a man who had kids. And she was just like, what the hell makes you think that they're going to ask you all these questions? I don't know. I've just told myself that this is all of their business and that they're going to hold so much judgment that it's just going to be unbearable. So she literally got a phone number and had me dial it in session and talk to somebody and work through kind of a find a credit card kind of payoff program and kind of set dates and kind of numbers around thing things. And then I just had to follow up with them to sign the to sign the contract or whichever it was. But she made me do that in one of these sessions. Because she know what I'm gonna do by myself. So she's like, we can just do this here right now. She's like, where's your phone? It's like, for what? I don't understand what's happening. And she's like, here's a number call the number and see what you get. And it's a very nice woman on the other end. And she asked me no questions about my personal life. whatsoever. <laughs> um, but her just forced me to confront the reality versus the story I'd made up in my head. And that's, the, that's where the shame comes in. We make up all these narratives 
and from then, like that was just really helpful. And I was like, oh, okay, I can do this number a month. I can pay this off and this will take me years, but I know that I'm paying every month and now I feel like a better citizen and I feel more responsible. Cool, take my money. Just take it right out my account and I don't have to see it, but I know that I can pay that monthly. Fine, I don't even care how long it takes y'all. Just, and I don't care that you're getting paid $19 out of it every month. I don't care, but I can pay for this now. So that was very helpful. So once that was set up and the money was just coming out of my account, then it was just looking at how many months until I pay this thing off. And both of those credit cards were paid off a few years ago. A few years ago. Um, by that time, I'd had some, I'd had surgery the end of 2016. So I had some medical bills to pay for. That's a whole nother um, thing. But I think by the top of 2016, those cards were paid off. It was just slow going. But as long as I knew that I was contributing monthly, that was fine for me. As long as I was doing the thing to not be avoidant, I had a lot of relief. Mm, that's, gosh, that was a lot. So first of all, it's about what we make it in our head. Yeah. Sometimes us not confronting it, confronting um, when we're avoiding the money issues is mm-hmm. what we're saying and the things that, you know, we're thinking in our head. Right. And so it just keeps to get worse and worse and worse. Exactly. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And she, hey, none of that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, that these decisions that you've made about your money are representative of kind of a lot of different things, um, but it doesn't mean that you're any less of a blank, 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 but also there's something you can do about these things. And you're kind of blessed and kind of favored enough to be able to take care of some of this now. So here's your opportunity. You not have to feel shame around it. And the minute I started paying, paying stuff off or paying stuff down, shame was gone. Because now I have a new narrative and be like, oh, I'm, I'm paying off my debt versus I have debt, I have debt, and this becomes part of my identity. Nope, I have debt and I'm paying it off. So, okay, that's fine. That's so good because I'm I'm the opposite though. I'm just like the fact that it's there. I don't even care that I'm paying it off. <laughs> For me, it's like, why is it here? Because I've come out of it and then I've gone back into it. Okay. So like, you know, when you like, especially with credit card debt where you I've been able to come out and then I've had to, then I've gone back in, back in. is like the frustration and and. Ah. The, and the shame in, in that part. So it's like, I'm always going to pay it. Like, I think me not paying a bill is like, I don't know, that stuff. <laughs> I was like, they can't see your face. So I, can see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, um, you know, that Caribbean. Mm. <laughs> in is like, you bet. Like I put myself on a punishment and said, you don't know how to act right with a credit card. So you don't get to have one. So I have not had a credit card since 20... 2011 so I have debit cards but I was like the money that I'm spending is the money that's mine because I don't know how to act right just yet so cool until I feel more confident in my decision to do that and, and I can get one I've just I just always forget and kind of just I've been meaning to get one actually for two years now um but yeah so I don't have credit card debt anymore because I just have not had credit cards mm. that's good discipline until I paid I had like this express bill that was haunting me for a while that I had to pay off kind of years and years ago but it's like oh you can't go back to express you just can't do it. You're not allowed to go into Express because you don't know how to act. So I can get disciplined around stuff like that. So I haven't been into an Express store since 2013, 2012, 2013. So things like that, that when I started paying off specific debts, I just took myself out of that realm of even engaging in those things again. So if I don't have the money for it, it ain't for me. I just don't have the money for it. Yeah. yeah. I don't put on a credit card to pay off later. Yeah, I have been doing a lot better and I'm like, I'm just going to use this debit card. If the money's there, the money's there, but. <laughs> uh, 
like that's why I've been needing to switch the savings to the check and to make sure the things are there. But yeah, I don't. Uh, I just don't. Me and credit. And I think we'd be fine now. Now it's just ahead. Now it's just a, a point of me like going and getting a credit card. Cool. Wow. And I think also you we, you mentioned earlier that especially in the black community and then with black women, we don't talk about money in general. And so we don't, don't even talk about lack of we yeah. don't talk about strategies around it. We don't talk about literacy. We talk about not having enough or wanting more, or wanting a partner who has it for us or something. Like yeah. That. And so we don't deal with it and we do stay in shame. I do follow um, a couple of um, really good financial literacy mm-hmm. stuff on Instagram, yeah. which has been um, really helpful. So I just want to say to people listening, there are ways, if you mm-hmm. don't want to tell somebody, there are people who do give great tools and share their story. And there's also podcasts about finances and things like that to help us see that we're not the only ones and that it is possible, but I still feel there is still a lot of shame. Even when we think about, you know, jobs, everyone doesn't talk about how much money they make. And mm-hmm. like, you know, you being a doctor, you should make this much or you should have yeah. this much. It's like, you know, me being a business owner, well, you should be having this, you know? And so if you don't you make assumptions sh- about how much you have and how much you pocket and how much the, and based mm-hmm. on how much they think you have, what your money should be spent on and all these things. So it's hard to actually happening and where some of that money is going, whether it be about kind of my personal expenses, whether that be about family stuff, whatever it might be, people, people make a lot of decisions about your money and, and we can internalize that and that creates shame versus yeah, the things that we, we ideally would be doing with our money to set us up. I'm hearing a lot more conversations around generational wealth, right. And kind of legacy um, stuff. And that does bring some anxiety in terms of like, Whose kids? Who got money for a kid? Like I don't <laughs> here, like I'm not. So, um, so there's a different kind of anxiety that's now prompted now. I think that now that I'm a certain age, and again, kind of taking in a lot of people's projections about what my money should be lining up, um, without looking at very specific factors to me. Mm, so you do have some. Of course, you don't have anxiety like it used to, but it still does come up every now and again. Yeah. Yeah, um, because now I'm th- now I'm looking forward more versus like I've got to figure out this right now. I mean, granted, my I have a lot of student loan debt, um, but I'm finding myself more recently feel more anxious around not having savings that I quote unquote should have by this age, or do I need to now just be making more money so I can just you know drop a lump sum into savings and trying not to get myself kind of caught up in all of those um, in all of those conversations. What do you want to say to people? Because I know I have conversations around that, you know, my own conversations in my head and with friends that they feel like at this age, they should be a certain place financially, whether it's like you said, buying a home, whether they shouldn't be a roommate at this Mm -hmm. age, or if people are still living a home or I should have a certain amount or I should be able to travel all the time by a certain age, you know? What do you want to share or say to that? I mean, it's the same thing I would say to any of the shoulds, right? That the, that the shoulds have nothing to do with you, right? The, the shoulds really kind of get in the way of um, the present or kind of the facts about what is going on. Um, the shoulds get in the way of allowing you to, to really kind of tease apart or look at what's in between you and that thing. Um, so oftentimes when I have clients talk about I should, 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 I'm like, where's that voice coming from? Is that from you? Is that from society? 
feel like we can't talk about financial anxiety without talking about capitalism and racism, kind of all these things that factor into um, this identity that we create around how we handle money. Um, but that the shoulds necessarily, the shoulds just, just oftentimes are typically are not helpful. They create more shame and they actually leave you more stuck than kind of getting closer to any of those goals. So a different, a different thing to say to yourself or a different question to ask is what's between me and that thing? What would need to happen for me to get to that um, thing? But also reevaluating, is that thing actually about me and what I want? Or is that like this kind of fantasy that I'm telling myself that I, that, you know, again, quote unquote, should happen um, by this very arbitrary age, right? In actuality, me being, I'm 35, um, 35 means nothing, right? In actuality, 30 means nothing, but we make these things, these very kind of arbitrary milestones that, you know, by 40, you should have this. And by, I don't understand why. And most people by 40 don't have that. So whatever the thing is, most people by 35 don't have that thing that Instagram is telling you 35-year-olds should have. So really kind of doing a reality check as well on that, that your finances are yours. And if you want to change the story about your money, you can. But that means you have to confront the numbers. You have to confront what the money looks like. That's really good. Because you said, I never thought about that, that, it's saying, you know, those things that say at 35, you should have this, but most 35 year olds actually don't have it. Whatever the, and literally whatever the thing is, most blank age people don't have that thing. If you look, if you're looking across the world, most people don't have that thing. Right. So that's the, the reality check between getting caught up in these messages of where you should be versus being able to honor where you are and make sense of how you are, why you are, where you are now. That's actually more helpful than by 40, I've got to do this. It actually creates much more anxiety. And you can have goals, you can have things that you aspire to, but really paying attention to who, whose voice is that saying that I should have this goal by this age, that I should have this much money in my savings account. Every 35-year-old should have blank in their savings. Okay, but again, most don't. And if we're not going to talk about, like I said, capitalism, racism, sexism, if we're not going to talk about all those things, then we can't be putting out these kind of arbitrary blankets about where I should be. Mm. by a certain date and time in your book ideal in some ways sure but yeah I'm, I'm, not, I'm much more concerned with security in wherever I am um, versus this kind of pressure to get to a certain place or state. so it's kind of like um I I I did this um self-compassion meditation maybe about two days ago and it was talking about what are you beating yourself up for in the shoulds and one of them Mm -hmm. definitely for me was finances and it was talking about you know where do I feel in my body and experience in my body and the other thing it's interesting you say this is I was challenging myself to let go of where I think I should be but first, of course, I should identify where I feel like I should be another thing I challenged myself was not only should I you know, identify where I think I should be. Like, how do I think my life would be different? Or yep. how would I feel different if I was in that space? Yeah. And then, but the definitely the big one was letting go of the shoulds and the expectations um, and kind of um, giving myself an opportunity to grieve it as well. To grieve that, that, again, that kind of identity, that fantasy, that whichever, same ways in which I had to grieve all these ideas that I thought that by 25, I'd be married with two kids. <laughs> like, 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 grieve that, grieve that, because that is not how your life is going and you get to honor what's actually happening in your life so that you don't miss out on that. And, and I think even as it, even more specifically when it comes to, to 
those conversations around money and kind of where you should be, that there can be one thing that happens in your life that takes all that money away. There could be, you could get hurt. You could lose a job and all of a sudden, right? So even kind of wrapping your identity around your, around the money that you make is problematic for a number of, it's, it's just, it's shallow. It's so it's problematic for a number of reasons because your financial situation can and does change at any given point. That actually has nothing to do with you. Job loss out here is real, right? Medical crises are real, right? So that can change the game in literally a second. And then what do you have under that if everything is based on you having this kind of house or you having this much money in your bank account? Like one diagnosis can wipe your bank account. Clean, clean. So, so really trying to kind of remind myself of those things also helps me kind of detach from um, some of the shame. Yeah. Cool. So any other tools that were helpful or have been helpful for you? I know there's, there's, I've, I have not been the greatest at kind of getting into some of these apps, but uh, apps like Mint, I think when I was like more active in it, I always think about getting more active in it. Um, is really helpful as kind of just a tracker of your money. Just so you can literally see, I think one time I had, I had looked at some numbers and I saw how much I spent on like convenient food, right? Because I hadn't prepped things. And when I looked at this number, I was just like, what are you, you don't have to do this. You can, and there's a, there's a blessing in that. But the time and the money that I spend on food for convenience, because I don't have something on me, there's a huge gap in between what my finance or kind of what my weekly spending looks like when, when, there, when I bring food to work versus that. So, um, so apps like mint, I think there are some other finance apps that are help every dollar mint, things like that. There are some pages that I follow that have really, um, really good challenges, like monthly stuff to think about or biannual stuff to think about, um, like budget Nista. And these are, and I think not the majority of them, um, are black women, but I also like paying attention to black women's conversations around money and not just the Dave Ramsey's or the Suze Ormans. And I, and I I won't remove anything from them because they've got enough stuff right, although they also have racial power to kind of hold them up in a way in terms of their whiteness. But at the same time, they still have some, some tips or kind of things to think about that I think are helpful, regardless if I can't take in their full narrative because, because we're vastly different. But yeah, Budget Nista, Fab, My Fab Finance, Clever Girl Finance, the finance bar, like those are different kind of, um, I like the finance bar Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, that have been helpful for me just to be mindful of some things. So it's not like I'm kind of doing these things and and it's changed my finances around because I actually haven't been super committed to them, but just to have a mindfulness around some of those topics and conversations and feelings that come up around it, I think has been helpful um, for me and hasn't said, it hasn't seemed as overwhelming as maybe some of the other plans. Like, Hey, you just need to not spend anything on anything and cook every night and do all this stuff. And that that's too abrupt for me versus this week, look at your bank account this week, count how many times you have gone into a restaurant, like things like that. Like, okay, I've gone to a restaurant three times this week. Like things like that are very helpful to then kind of build up into, okay, now look at how much money you spent at each restaurant. Okay. Now let's try putting money in an envelope versus having your card and stuff like that. I actually don't, I don't like things that don't, that have me like not bring my debit card around because things happen. So I just, yeah. But just practicing different skills to kind of flex a different kind of muscle, I think is helpful for you. Regardless, if you take that in as your new practice, I think it's helpful to know that you can do it. Yeah. I love that. And I think the other thing about that is um, changing up your feed. Mm. Um, and definitely, you know, there's the positive feeds, but then 
also, you know, if you're looking at someone who's apparently got all this money, then you yeah. also look at the realistic of taking care of your money and things like yeah. that. Like I follow the finance bar. The other app I like is you, you need a budget. Yes. And I, I love you need a budget. I feel like it's for people who struggle with perfectionism. I feel like it's the best app because it allows you to move the money around and you don't have to stay in it in Mm -hmm. you know it allows it to move it from budget to budget but you become definitely more responsible and more aware but you don't have to do it perfectly so it's not Mm -hmm. like exhausting or bringing in that shame that's why I feel like it's for like if you're a perfectionist get this one because you know you won't feel so much of the shame um navigate some of that yeah 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 do you have any books or any podcasts or any other resources you want to share definitely not not books um there are a few podcasts and I and I can't say that I've gotten like deep 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 into these podcasts um so I know that Clever Girl Finance has a podcast that I has a podcast that I've listened to um a few times that I found helpful and there is another one. Optimal Finance Daily is another one that I have found um, helpful. Um, and actually podcasts that I've found helpful in me and how I think about my finances haven't been financial podcasts. That makes sense. So they kind of things focused on finance. But listening to my leaks podcast has been helpful just in terms of how she just thinks about, I think, things in general as well as how she puts things how she's kind of upfront about not what she does with her money or kind of how much money, but just her conversations around that um, have been helpful. Um, Nicole Walters um, has been a good podcast that I have listened to that again, see she talks explicitly sometimes about finance, but not all the time. And uh, there's another one. Is it journey to launch? I want to say it's journey to launch. Yeah. I think she's the one that just hit like 1 million or something. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think um, so also that one. So yeah, so even though they're actually like, I like podcasts or kind of data that sometimes it's not, doesn't have that specific focus, but it can be intertwined into the conversation. It's a, it's an easier way for me to take in mm-hmm. Yeah, um, back when it kind of has a bit more of a narrative to it versus, Hey, do these things, do these things, do these things. So I like mixing it up. Cool. In- Cool. Thank you for that. That's great information. Of course, we'll be putting that in the show notes. And so where can we um, shower you with love? Instagram is probably the easiest way um, to find me. Um, so on Instagram, I am Dr. Underscore Ayana underscore A. Um, so that's Dr. Just D-R underscore A-Y-A-N-N-A underscore A. My website is drabramsabh.com. Um, that's Ascension Behavioral Health. On Facebook, I'm at Ascension, Be- Ascension Behavioral Health LLC. Ascension spelled A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N. And my other mental health black women's initiative is called not so strong it can be found on instagram at not so strong facebook at not so strong and our website at not so strong cool great that's great stuff thank you so much for being on here and just sharing your amazing story places so you what i said i ain't talking about my money in none of those places so. <laughs> 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 all right thank you All right. Thanks. If you connected with what you just heard, please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. You can stay connected by following our Instagram, Authentic Wednesday podcast and visiting our website, AuthenticWednesday.com. 
Remember, authenticity is a journey, not a destination.